With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast, I'm Dave Hendon, it's our fifth birthday, yes, the podcast, Yay. Yeah, yeah, well, well if it, it, there would be street parties, but for the lockdown measures, uh, <laughs> podcast is five years old this month, uh, you know, people said it wouldn't last, mainly me, but uh, here we are, five, five years on, obviously, it sort of picked up speed a little bit because of uh, the events of this year, so uh, Michael McMullen uh, joins me, and uh, well, well done us. <laughs> yeah, I remember my first appearance was about the third or fourth one. I think we were in some sort of medical emergency room mm. at the Rico Arena. Yeah. And um, looking back on the 80s, it was. So so I think that was, as I say, I think that, that was a few episodes in. So what was on the first one? I actually can't remember. It was me speaking to Clive. Um, All right. It was sort of an introductory, uh, just, you know, hello, hello world. Um <laughs> Yeah, and uh, you know who who knew that it would uh, that we'd still be going. This is episode one hundred one hundred twenty eight, which seems apt because that's how many people are on the tour. Um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, we're going to plow on. And uh, talking of sort of anniversaries, it's the fifth year of the Home Nation series. This uh, podcast will be going out as the English Open starts. Um, so we're, we're going to be picking out our top five moments of the Home Nation series. Um, and also later on, we've got a lot of emails come in over the last couple of weeks. Uh, including one from the BBC Science correspondent, so we'll Might we'll work. get. Oh yeah, yeah. So we'll it's a proper class of listener now. So we're going to get <laughs> going to get to that shortly. Uh, firstly, though, as any sort of you know birthday uh, sort of celebration uh, demands, I'm going to have a go at someone um, <laughs> because at the start of the lockdown, uh, we had an email from someone who was having a go at the World Snooker Tour app, and um, I don't know, maybe I was just sort of. Uh, dizzy with what was happening in the world but i actually defended it. i said you know you've got to give it a bit of time it only just been launched let's see how it develops well it turns out it hasn't developed and i speak from experience because when i was doing the, the european masters because of the different regulations at eurosport where we were commentating from it wasn't like a normal uh, booth with computers and so on we were actually in a sort of gallery there was no room for laptops or anything so the only way i could actually follow the scores on the other tables was on my phone you know you like to give out updates what's happening and I was using the app, and then I realised about halfway through the tournament, a lot of the matches actually they weren't the, the matches were not being registered on the app. And when you clicked on the draw, it says draw coming soon. It still says that as we record this now for the English Open, which starts in three days' time. So, I, to me, you know, if you're going to have something like that, which obviously in the modern world you would expect a, a major governing body to have, actually make it any good. Don't just put out a half-assed version, you know, and 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 have people think that that's okay because it isn't okay. Um, that's my view on the app. Have you used it? Uh, not a huge amount, not huge, largely because uh, with the lockdown and everything, I've been at home so much. I've been able to watch everything as it's been going on. So uh, yeah, I've I've not experienced experienced much of it. So when well, did it start? It's about a year ago now, a bit less was, than that actually. No, it was in. It was launched at uh, when we were in Cheltenham because they were getting players to do little sort of adverts for it. So that would have been February. Um. You know, it's like anything. If you can actually, like, they're a governing body. If I launched an app and it wasn't any good, it wouldn't really matter because so what. But 
They've actually got resources to do it properly. So do it properly. It's no good having a button click on the drawer and the drawer not being there. It's just basic stuff. Anyway, the tone the tone of the podcast is not going to be like this all the way through. You'll be glad to know. It is most weeks. Yeah, because we're gonna we're gonna celebrate the home nations. Uh, started in 2016, so starting their fifth year. Um, obviously, English Open, uh, Northern Ireland Open, Scottish Open, Welsh Open. Uh, there was a bit of chat about whether home nations was the right term for it, but that's maybe for another day. But anyway, there's been a lot of memorable matches. We've decided to choose our best five. We're not going to take too long over this. Um, four of mine are from finals, which is maybe no great surprise. So what I'll do, I'll just run down five to one uh, with a very brief reason why on each. You do the same, then we'll have a sort of general chat about it, okay? So, number five for me, well, it was the very first final, 2016 English Open, Liang Wen, Po Judd Trump. And my memory of that was the very end, of course, when Liang has not quite potted the winning balls and has started to celebrate. And I remember, I was commentating, I remember literally kind of shouting, calm down, because you could see in another world, uh, another day, him missing, I think it was the blue he needed eventually to win because he was so overexcited. Thankfully, he potted it. And and I, I thought it was great to see someone actually happy to win something, not sort of affecting a cool nonchalance, but actually just happy. Uh, so that was the very first one. And then later that season, so number four, it was the semi-finals of the Scottish Open uh, 2016, John Higgins, Judd Trump. This was extraordinary. Trump was 5-1 up and he was sailing to victory. And John Higgins... One six five. Now you might think, oh, Trump must have gone. He didn't go. I promise you, from five one to five all, he did not see a ball. The safety play from John Higgins that day was some of the best you'll ever see. Just kept him out, kept him out, kept him out. Trump did have a chance in the decider, but by then he was so kind of shell shocked. I think John Higgins came through. Obviously lost to Marco Fu in the final in his native Glasgow. The thing about that was at that time Higgins was the player that Trump was struggling to beat. Mm. Now, what's changed since then is normally he beats him now. So he's kind of, to me, that rivalry is almost more important than the one with O'Sullivan because Higgins, with the all-round game and certainly memories of that day, and he also came back prior to that against him in Shanghai, I think Trump generally thought he was the best player. And that day, clearly John Higgins was. Uh, We'll move on to number three. This is also in Scotland. This was the 2017 final, Neil Robertson, Chow Yupeng. Uh, talk about drama. I mean, frame two, Neil Robertson won on the black and gave it the fist. That that will tell you how pumped up he was. He was eight four down. Of course, Chow Peng trying to win his first match. At eight seven, he had the black to win nine seven. It looked like it was going in. It didn't go in. Robertson won the frame. Robertson won the decider. I remember afterwards, Chow Peng was so uh, upset, you know, shell shocked by it because I think players in that sort of position. You know, they, they maybe don't expect to be in future finals. Of course, he subsequently got, got chucked off the tour. Yes. Uh, number two is the 2018 Northern Ireland Open final, Judd Trump, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Um, they maybe have had better matches, but I think th- this was symbolic of the start of Trump's real ascent to the top in terms of the consistency he's had since. that was He hadn't won a tournament for a year. Um, and people, were, as they do, starting to sort of make comments and write him off. He won that final, pulsating final. You know, I was commentating, and the Northern Irish fans are very uh, passionate. It was a fantastic atmosphere in the Waterford Hall. It was a great match. And as I say, Trump won, and that was the start of his run. Of course, he defended the title, but also Masters, World Championship, World Number One, etc. And for me, there can only be one number one, having been at all these events, and that is the 2016 Northern Ireland Open final in Belfast, which is Mark King and Barry Hawkins. Um, at the start of the week, if, if you'd have said that would be the final, I think a lot of people would say, really? <laughs> but the drama and the human aspect of it, it was a, firstly, it was a really good match. It was a really good match. Remember the penultimate frame where Mark King uh, played to get the pink on top of the black, which is over the pocket, and got Hawkins to knock it in. I mean, that could have been 9-7. It was 8 each. And at the end, of course, you know, 25 years of graft, we, you know, eventually got its reward. He'd been waiting and waiting and waiting to win a tournament. It looked like he probably wouldn't, but the increased opportunities, the increased number of events. King's always been a player who'll just play. And he had his family there, apart from his dad, ironically, Bill, who'd been with him in every other tournament. But, you know, he made that speech, which was about as far away as, you know, a sanitised, rehearsed corporate sporting speech as you can get. I thought mm. it was a great, I thought it was a great moment. I thought it was a really great sporting moment. And looking back on the home nations, that would be my number one. Over to you. Yeah, I mean, the, there's three of those that I certainly considered uh, the 18 Northern Ireland Open final. The one you've just been talking about in Northern Ireland as well with Mark King and then the Scottish final that Robertson won. But I, I wanted to mix it up a bit and do slightly mm-hmm. different ones that you wouldn't necessarily put in. 
So number five is John Higgins against Sam Craigie in the 2016 Northern Ireland Open. Now, this is a slightly personal one because you'll remember, Dave, that back in the old Irish Masters days at Goffs, they used to go around at the end of each frame with a sheet where someone had marked every single shot on it. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2000, which was actually the last year at Goffs, John Higgins made a maximum there in actually the first frame he played in the tournament against Jimmy White. So I took the match sheet, I got it signed by John Higgins, and it's actually still on the wall behind me here 20 years later. Fast forward to 2016. Now, I'd been watching that one in 2000 on the monitor in the press room. In 2016, I was actually in the arena when John Higgins made his maximum against Sam Craigie to close out the match. Uh, And it was a difficult enough finish to it. He had a tricky blue, left himself pretty much dead straight on the pink. So he was very high on the black. So it was a really good way to finish it as well. And I thought, well, I've got to get this match sheet signed as well, because this is the first professional maximum made in Northern Ireland. Uh, I already had the one that John one in the Republic of Ireland, so I got him to sign the sheet. It was only later I remembered, of course, Ronnie had made a maximum in the old Northern Ireland <laughs> Trophy back Good. in 2007. But it was still, you know, obviously special to be there for that, and um, it was just a great moment uh, to be there. I, I think it's the only time I've actually been in the arena from start to finish of a 147, but other times I've maybe run in for the last few shots or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so that was a slightly personal one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the very earliest uh, home nations events, of course. Number four is Lee Walker against Judd Trump wow. from the 2019 English Open. So pretty much exactly a year ago. And Trump obviously going in on the crest of a wave. He's uh, won the world championship. He's playing really well at the time. And he had a couple of centuries early on in that match. In fact, he'd won his first two matches in the tournament without dropping a frame. So he was looking in great form. But Lee Walker closed it out with two good breaks in the last two frames. A massive upset. I remember Judd coming in uh, to the press room afterwards and he, it was like he just could not believe that he'd lost that match. But it wasn't like he'd been ground down, as you might expect, of a player like Lee Walker. Walker had actually played about as well as he'd ever done in his whole career. And I think I put that in just to symbolise how the best of seven format that you have for the first four rounds of these events has thrown up so many surprises and given so many players the chance to beat some of the big stars in the game and I think that was perhaps the ultimate example of it. Number three well you have included two Northern Ireland Open finals so I'm going to include another one it's Mark Williams against uh, Jan Bintau uh, from 2017 Jan of course was looking to become uh, the youngest ranking event winner and he got very close to it he was leading 8-7. Williams then won two you know really tense frames to take it by nine frames to eight and of course it was the first ranking title he'd won in I think it was seven years something like that and indeed, the start of everything that was to follow, uh, and which was to culminate in uh, him winning at the end of the season, what I still think was the greatest ever world final. Number two was a match you picked, Liang Wenbo against Judd Trump, the 2016 English Open final. Liang was 7-4 up. up. Uh, Trump got back to 7-6. But uh, all credit to Liang for the fact that he held <laughs> off Trump's comeback. And we know how emotional Liang gets. I mean, you talk about, you know, wearing your emotions on your sleeve. I mean, he absolutely does that more than any other player. And you could see how hard he was finding it to hold himself together. But somehow he managed to do it. He won the match 9-6. But as you said, Dave, it was the celebration. Uh, I I can't remember anyone ever celebrating a tournament victory quite like that. Uh, And I think it was just because of, of the way it had all finished and the fact that, you know, those last two frames, he just put every last ounce of himself into them. And uh, Trump won that final. And uh, sorry, Liang won that final against Trump. They've met another six times since then, and Liang hasn't beaten him again. Maybe he used it all up in that one. But for me, number one is the 2018 English Open final between Stuart Bingham and Mark Davis. And Mm. this is memorable for uh, one particular incident. Now, Davis is basically playing on home ground here. It's very close to where he lived. So all his family were there for the final. First ranking final he got to. He'd beaten Ronnie O'Sullivan 6-1 the night before with an absolutely unbelievable performance. And from 4-3 down, he played two great frames, the last of the afternoon and the first of the night. Two big breaks to go 5-4 up. He's absolutely flying. He's in first in the next frame on a break of 40. Calls himself for a foul, feathering the white. What a thing to do in that situation. And we say it so often, you really don't see that in many other sports at all. And then, of course, Stuart Bingham comes back, break of 78, wins the frame. Thing is, Davis actually did manage to uh, go back into the lead. He made a good clearance to go 7-6 up. Bingham then won the last three frames. He made two good breaks and then won a tight one at the end. But you still, you know, you you just never know what would have happened if Davis had managed to win that frame where he called himself for the foul, 
um, could have kept his momentum going. He might have swept to the to the line quite comfortably from there. But you know what a chance it was for him. I have to say the likelihood is he'll never be that close again. And of course, there was a lot going on with Bingham as well because he had uh, not that long before that been banned from the circuit over betting irregularities. Now. You know, you hear that expression. People always think it's match fixing. It wasn't anything like that at all. It was simply the fact that he was betting on snooker matches that he shouldn't have been doing. So he got quite emotional himself at the end when when he managed to uh, to to get the win and sort of complete the comeback from where he'd been only twelve months or so earlier. So that for me is the number one moment in the home nations. But so many to to, to choose from, even in a relatively short period of time that they've been around. It's a good one, actually, uh, the Davis Bingham, because that was kind of. It seems fated that, that Mark Davis would win that because he was basically on home soil, um, mm. very close to where he lived, um, you know, and it's similar to Mark King. All the years he'd been on the circuit, it's probably due a win, good enough to win a tournament. But obviously, you know, sport isn't like that, I'm afraid. Um, I'll say a couple of things on that. The Lee Walker Judd Trump one is an interesting one because I think that's an in, that's a perfect example of you 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 think that a player like Trump, a top player, would be frustrated by a player like Lee Walker sort of trying to grind there. Actually, what's more frustrating than that is him playing really well. Because <laughs> I think mentally you prepare for a battle of a certain sort and then suddenly, oh, he's playing great. And what, you know, what can I do about it? Um, the other thing is, you correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think either of us have picked anything from the Welsh Open, which actually is the one event, obviously, that is, is slightly different to the others because it was established in the first place. And I would argue has been sort of reinvigorated by the Home Nation series. Um, there's been some great finals down there. Um, yeah. Some great matches. Now, here's the thing. Okay, so I've been to all of these events. Um, I'm not, I think like some are better than others. I think the Northern Irish and the Welsh are the two best, and I think the reason for that is they are in the centre of two big cities. You know, the Cardiff one is right in the centre of the city. Of course, it's ha- it's got also the, the goodwill of the public who've been coming. You know, when it wasn't home nations, Belfast at the waterfront, fantastic venue. Um, again, in the heart of the city. The Scottish one has always been held, it's going to be Milton Keynes as we know this year, but it's always been held in Glasgow. That sounds, oh great, you know, one of the great cities of the country, but it's out the way, it's by Celtic, uh, the the football ground. It's not right in the city centre. And I just think also the pre-Christmas doesn't help it for crowds because people are out doing other things. They're shopping or they're out partying, whatever. In the old days they would have been (laughs) when the the pubs were open. Um, So... It kind of suffered a little bit. Also, right after the UK Championship, which is one of the big events, it just slightly suffered a little bit from that, even though, as we've already said, it's had some great matches. And the English has kind of been moved around. It started in Manchester, which I actually thought was a good venue. Um, again, a big city, a little bit out of the way, but it was by the Trafford Centre. So you've got sort of residual people coming in you know, from shopping. Went to Barnsley, which was not a great venue, really, for a major ranking event, I didn't think. Crawley... I actually agreed with a lot of what Ronnie O'Sullivan said about that venue. I didn't think it was great. It was a big leisure centre. And the problem is all the other activities were still going on. So the snooker was just another thing going on in the, in the building. It didn't sort of smack of a, of an event, of a, of a venue for a you know, top-class sporting event. Um, again, this year it's in Milton Keynes. Uh, but as a whole, as a series, I think it's worked really well. It's kept a lot of the interest up in the UK. You know, the crowds have been good. And as we've said, we've seen some great snooker. Yeah, it is fantastic. You know, after all the focus there's been on trying to expand around the world over the last 10 years with quite a bit of success. You know, this was what Barry Hearn said when he launched these events. He wanted to bring snooker back to the people and get more events going on in the UK where it's still massively popular. and I think probably more popular now than it's been at any time in maybe the last 20 years or so. So it's great that all these cities, you know, massive snooker cities are getting the chance to see tournament snooker. I mean, it just seems incredible that there have been some seasons in recent times when Scotland, for example, didn't have anything. Just amazing mm-hmm. when you think of its of its role in the game. And I remember um, that first Northern Ireland Open, uh, the one in the massive marquee with the, the, the wind whipping all around it. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan played Jimmy White in that one. I think it may even have been as far in as the third round. And it was just fantastic. You could see the excitement among the Belfast public who'd managed to get in because as far as I remember the match was sold out and people were being turned away who wanted to come in and see it and thinking this is great you know these people wouldn't get a chance to see a match like this if it wasn't for the home nation series and you think of so many other things that have happened Dave I mean you, you and I would never have gone on a tour of Crawley's abandoned car parks with Neil Foles <laughs> who thought we were going to get attacked by Alsatians if it wasn't for the home nations neither would we have uh, thought we were going to be
be murdered in a bar in Belfast a few years ago <laughs> without the home nations. And of course, we wouldn't have had the controversy that you unwittingly got roped into mm-hmm. um, involving Ronnie O'Sullivan at, at the English Open. I think that was was two years ago when there was the incident where he, he brushed the ball and nobody except you noticed. So yeah. Yeah. it's just given the opportunity, hasn't it, for, well, for a number of players to win titles who might not otherwise have done because... Not so long ago, there weren't that many to go around. You mentioned Mark King. We spoke about Liang Wenbo. Mark Fu, when he won the Scottish Open, winning eight frames in a row after John Higgins had started the match unbelievably well. You know, look what a great player Marco is. He'd only won a couple of tournaments, and a lot of that is because there weren't that many to go around. But it's just given so much opportunity to so many players, not even necessarily to win tournaments, but even in the case of players like Lee Walker, for example, to make a name for themselves. Now, I know he was established before he'd been in a world quarterfinal, but, you know, he was playing the world champion. He himself was someone who was better known for being basically Mark Williams' corner man when he won the world championship the year before that. And for him to produce perhaps the best performance of his life and probably the result of his life, again, the home nations create so many of these opportunities. And you think now, okay, it's going to be very different this year because they're all going to be in Milton Keynes and certainly, you know, with the possible exception of the Welsh. We're going to have three great weeks of snooker that we wouldn't otherwise have had in the uh, long winter months ahead. Let's just row back there. You saying we nearly got murdered in Belfast. I should maybe <laughs> explain that. Basically, we got we, we, we were minding our own business. We got talking to, let's say, a local character who, yeah. may, who may have ingested chemicals um, other than alcohol mm-hmm. and seemed, seemed to have a razor on him at one point. But anyway, we, we, we survived to do the we podcast. Did. Let's get to the emails now. Um, so Richard Westcott is the BBC science correspondent, which is exciting. Um, he's from what people call the mainstream media, or as I call it, the media. Uh, yeah. Anyway, and he said, I have a question about Stephen Hendry. And I suspect you might be the only people who can answer it. A few months ago, sometime before he announced his comeback, it was on the BBC Don't Tell Me the Score podcast. I heard him give an interview where he talked about a specific type of shot that he was suddenly unable to play. He said that it went wrong once. Then he began to dread it coming up again. So he started playing the wrong shots to try avoid leaving himself this specific shot. It was the start of his yips, as he called them. Frustratingly, the interviewer didn't then ask which type of shot he was talking about. That set it all off. So ahead of his very welcome return, I have some questions for you, which I think might make an interesting wider discussion. Do you know which specific shot started his yips off? He describes playing this one shot that didn't feel right, and it's snowballing from there. What type of shot was it, and just how bad did his yips get in the end? It begs the question, is... Is it still a barrier for him? And if so, might his new opponents use the information to lay that shot and gain an advantage? He said he tried everything to overcome it at the time, but nothing worked. Do you know other snooker pros who have had similar issues? Different sport, I know, but to my mind springs Eric Bristow, who couldn't let go of the dart. If so, did they overcome them? There's still so much about Hendry that amazes me. You reminded me the other day that he won all his world titles by the time he was 30. I know he was making huge breaks within weeks of his dad buying him his first 6 by 3 It seems incredible such a natural talent can be flawed by a type of shot. I really hope he's able to do himself justice on his return. I have mine for trying. It takes some guts. Keep up the good work with the podcast. It's helped me make lockdown bearable. Thank you, Richard. He says, maximum break, a paltry 34. Well, that's something to work on. Um, <laughs> Well, I've, what I've done, Richard, I've reached for Hendry's book here, Me on the Table, where he, he discusses this. Um, now, he doesn't, he doesn't actually specifically say which shot it was, but my suspicion is from reading it that it's basically just a standard kind of pot. I think actually the sort of ball that he would normally, could probably literally pot with his eyes shut. So this is what he said. And he's working with Terry Griffiths, his coach at the time. He says, I've discovered that my queuing problems are being caused by something called the yips. Terry doesn't like the expression, but knows what it means. It affects snooker players and golfers, causing the latter to struggle with what should be simple putts. In my case, the inability to accelerate through the ball results in weak shots. There's a debate about whether the yips is a physical or psychological condition or a mixture of both. Certainly, I can feel a tightness around my wrist, which somehow stops me believing that I can play the shot. That in turn leaves the scar of a poor shot, one you avoid returning to in the future. So what it sounds like he's saying is essentially... And it must be it must start as a psychological issue. Uh, he walks into a shot in the maybe subconsciously believing he can't pop the ball or he just can't play the shot. And he doesn't get through the ball, as he says, in the normal way that his cue action would. Um, and that causes him then to sort of botch the shot. Um, so to me, I think it's just it could even be like a black off the spot. It's that simple. Um, why this diverts in him? Well, he actually says in the book that he was offered the chance to go and speak to psych- psychiatrists, psychologists. And actually didn't want to go that deep into it. He actually didn't want to delve that deeply into himself to see what, maybe why it was happening. Um, 
in the you know recently the reason he's come back is that he's worked with Steve Feeney from Sightright, which means it's a whole new kind of technique that he's working on. Um, it, it does seem incredible that it happened to Stephen Hendry. It, it, various players have had problems. Patsy Fagan years ago had a problem with the rest. He just couldn't play, you know, with the rest. I think he'd had a, a, some sort of car accident or something prior to that. They reckon that it was linked to that. Uh, Paul Davis, a player from Wales, at the mm. end of his career, we were talking about this recently. One of the tournaments. he had he had such a, a problem with the yips that there was one tournament where he, not only could he not deliver the cue, he couldn't get out of his chair to play the shot. That's how bad it got. Um, so with Hendry, yeah, I think it was just sort of standard bread and butter shots that he wouldn't even think about, um, you know, prior to prior to it happening. But that's very much the point, isn't it? Because the game just seemed to come so easily to him, as you referred to there. And he says in the book how he was making big breaks almost as soon as he started playing. And it kept coming very easily for him for the next 20 years or so, maybe even longer than that. So then when there's even one thing that isn't coming easily to you, you know, given where you've come from, that really gets in your head. And I think that was what happened with him. So perhaps it's perhaps less surprising that it happened with someone to whom the game came so easily. The Ips is a term that's re- referred to uh, a lot in golf. I think that's initially where it came from. And it particularly affects players with putting. Bernhard Langer was a, a very famous example of it. <coughs> Excuse me. And there was also another top player. I think it was Robert Carlson who actually walked off the course in the middle of a round at the Open Championship because he just couldn't let go of his putter. I think it was Robert Carlson. Now I'm not entirely sure. So that's where it comes from. You see it in darts as well. It's just basically a fear of letting go of the trigger because you're building up to the shot in your mind. But once you let go, you're giving up all control over what happens after that. So in sort of sports like that, where there's a still ball like golf and snooker and then in in darts, I know it's not a ball, but you're starting from a a still position, as it were. I think it's inevitably going to be part of it. But um, whether or not those demons will come back to Hendry when he starts playing again, you know, we'll wait and see. Maybe less likely because he'll probably find there are a lot more things that he can't do now as well as he used to. Well, in my my sort of unqualified opinion, it must be linked to wider anxiety. And I think when he developed it, the anxiety was... I've been at the top. There are these very good players, of Sullivan, Higgins, Williams, and others coming through. And in, it's almost subconsciously, I can't be at the top forever. And I think that must have contributed. Let's move on because I know you've got to, you've got to go and interview Aaron Hill later. So, That's um, right, yeah. So I'm going to blast through the next couple. Rob O'Connor, been enjoying the podcast from Dublin for a while now. I've been watching snooker regularly since 1986. My first live outing was at Goffs to see Ken beat Mike Allett in 1992. Amazingly, my second was at the Crucible in 20, 2019. I don't know whether he was in prison in between or what, but uh, <laughs> I, I had tickets for both semi-finals to to, uh, to a close this year and was left as a Ronnie fan, cursing the virus for denying me the chance to see probably two of the most amazing sessions of snooker ever played. Good to see Aaron Hill looking like he might be a new hope for Irish snooker, even if he is from Cork. Michael will explain the politics. We won't get into that now. Uh, he says, my question is about why Clive Everton deliberately called called players by their surnames. Uh, do you know the reason for this? Was it a way of maintaining some perceived distance from the players uh, he then says something very nice about me and Neil, which I which I won't read out. But uh, actually, me and Neil um, at the English Open are not allowed to commentate together because um, right. well, basically because of the sort of restrictions, um, we've had to, they've had to split the commentary into two pairs, so we can't be together um, in case one of us gets ill. It knock the whole commentary team out. So I'm with Joe. Neil deals with Phil Stubb. But to answer your question, yeah, you're right. That it is to um, it's a journalistic thing. Um, you know, we're not all pals. Even if we are pals, that doesn't matter because when you're commentating on a match, the lead commentator, and I've spoken before about the difference between a lead commentator and a co-commentator, the lead commentator, it's a journalistic role. And yeah, it is for distance. And it's the same reason Martin Tyler will, you know, will not say Raheem and, and Harry. He'll say Sterling and Kane. You know, it's it's just a basic kind of thing that I, I, I agree is kind of drifting out of snooker. I think it's fair enough for the player to maybe use the first name because... They are a player. They'll have played them. They'll know them well. I think the comment, the league commentator should maintain distance. I think the only time when maybe you can change it is, for example, at the Championship League last week, I ended up having breakfast with Kyron Wilson. Now, if I mentioned that on the commentary, I would say, oh, over breakfast, Kyron told me this, because that's more of a kind of human story. But in general, I think Clive got absolutely right. Um, yeah. So- I mean, it's funny. This question only ever comes up in snooker, because, mm. as you say, in other sports, you don't hear them being referred to by their first name, but nobody ever seems to 
question that. They seem to think in snooker that that you should. So I don't know why why that why that issue uh, keeps coming up in particular. But it's obviously something people want to know about. I agree entirely. I mean, I think you know when you're talking about it from that point of view, you, you have to refer to the players by their surname. Uh, it's a good habit to get into anyway because occasionally you'll have a match where the two players have the same first name. So you have to refer to them by surname. And then people might say, oh, that's a bit disrespectful. You normally call them by their first name. So I think it is the right thing to do. And as you say, that is the one exception when it's something like, oh, I was talking to yeah. such and such a person earlier. So, yeah, I would echo everything you're saying there. Can I just clarify, by the way, um, when I said earlier about the home nations that we've got three great events to look to, forward to over the winter months. I wasn't excluding the Welsh in case anyone in Swansea or Cardiff gets offended by that because... Obviously, I meant the events before Christmas, and obviously yeah, 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 that's yeah. coming in the springtime. But yeah, that that, uh, that match he's talking about there, um, when he saw Ken play Mike Hallett, that was in the semi-finals in '92. Ken actually got an invite to the Irish Masters in his rookie season, which is practically unheard of, and he managed to win a match against Doug Mountjoy before then losing to Jimmy Wise. But that year he's talking about '92. It was only his second season. The Irish Masters, as an invitational, had a really strong field. Ken managed to get all the way through to the final. He beat Alex Higgins. He beat Steve Davis when Steve got uh, penalised the decider for the three successive misses. Then there was the 6-1 win over Mike Hallett before he lost to Stephen Hendry in the final. So great thing to be there for because it was a fantastic run by Ken, one of the first really extended runs he had in a big event. Ian Jolliffe. Hi there. I discovered your podcast in lockdown. This seems to be a common theme. Uh, and have enjoyed listening to it while I work from home. I've always been a casual snooker fan, mainly watching the World Championship over many years, but rarely sitting down to watch a match from start to finish. It's always worked for me as a nice thing to have in the background, and I think actually a very good mindfulness tool. However, when snooker is one of the first sports to return in the early summer, I found myself watching more studiously and educating myself more about the sport. I see from the world rankings that the top players make a lot of money. However, those at the bottom seem to make a few thousand pounds at most from prize money. Are these prize winnings literally all the players have to live on? That must be major pressure for, for playing something they love. Do all players, or do all players on the tour get a basic salary, enabling them to pay the mortgage while they chase additional prize money? On a related point, can you think of recent examples where pro players have had to come off the tour to get a normal job purely because they can't make ends meet? Well, they don't get a salary. They get their prize money. Um, you can earn money from exhibitions. You can earn money from logo deals. Uh, that, both of those really depend on you being on TV. So obviously the top players get the, the share of that. The brutal truth is, you know, it's about results. And, you know, if you're not winning, you're not going to earn money. Uh, some players do have other jobs. Jamie O'Neill, for example, who's on the tour, uh, got on the tour last year again. He works as a tiler. He's got his own business. Uh, various players, Jimmy Robertson runs, runs a snooker club or owns a snooker club. Players have other sort of things in the background. They all want to be pro players, um, but you're quite right. The green nature of sport is not everyone can earn a great living. Uh, there have been players who've drifted away because they, they can't earn a living. Um, but, you know, what's, what's the alternative? Just just to give money for, to people who can't win matches? There's an argument to say if you're, if you're on, a, on the professional tour, there should be prize winning the first round. I think there is in some other sports. Um, for example, if you qualify for a Grand Slam, you're on about 30 grand or something for the first round. Um, but that's tennis. You know, they've got more money. They're a big sport in America and, and so on and so on. Um, the, the shootout, interesting. You do get 250 quid in the, in the opening round, whether you win or lose. Um, but, you know, the, the, the prizes, the big prizes, quite rightly, go to the players who, who win the tournaments. But, yeah, there are players who have to do other things. Um, and of course, it's difficult then to have enough time to practice if you're if you've got a, a you know a normal job. So it's a sort of um, it's a sort of vicious circle, I guess. I'm going to move on actually because we've got to we're up against it. So I'm going to move on to the next um, email. Paul Leavesley, please can you tell me why the referees are wearing face masks at the Championship League and yet they didn't during the recent European Masters? I'm also glad to have recently found the excellent Stugas in podcast during lockdown. Thank you, Paul. Basically, the Championship League is run by Matchroom Sport. And the European Masters is run by World Snooker. They had different protocols. And it was just agreed at the start of the Championship League that the players would wear face masks. There was no testing for the first week of it. When there were positive tests at the European Masters for the second week, they had tests. So it may look like the face masks were kind of maybe not required. They were just part of the agreed protocols. And you have to agree with the venue. You have to agree with like Milton Keynes Council. All sorts of people have to sign off on it. So you can't sort of change it halfway through. Um, so that's why it looked a bit odd. I agree, but mm. it, you know, it was what it was. Uh, now then we, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about forgotten matches. Um, and we've had quite a few people writing in with their memories. So let's try and get through as many as we can. Ray Morgan, 
The match that will always stick in my mind was between Willie Thorne and Stephen Hendry in the 1992 Matchroom League in the Ronda. The match was supposed to be between Jimmy White and Hendry, but Jimmy was unavailable, so Willie stepped in. There was supposed to be a gang of us going from the local Stute, I guess that's Institute, but most dropped, most dropped out when they heard Jimmy was in. All gutted afterwards, though, when I told them what I'd witnessed. I still have the ticket after all these years. Willie was 4-0 up going into the interval. When they came back, Stephen scored two centuries and an 80 and finished off with his first ever 147 in tournament play. The conditions were terrible that evening. It was so humid, they opened the main doors of the leisure centre to let the air in, but the condensation was still running off the brick walls. How they played so well, I'll never know. That sounds like a great night. I mentioned the, well, the match league I went to in Warsaw, and they, are, they were different because they were non-TV events. Yeah, and, you know, just thinking of that match there, can you imagine the anger Stephen Hendry was feeling at the interval? You know, that was a time when he was at the absolute peak of his game. He would have hated the idea of getting thumped by Willie Thorne. I'd say there was a lot of anger sort of fueling the performance that uh, he produced after the interval. But you did get performances like that. And a lot of it, I think, was because there was a bit less pressure. You know, if you didn't win the Matchroom League, it didn't matter to you quite as much as if you didn't win the UK Championship, for example. So with that bit of pressure off, you used to get some uh, great displays like the one that's been talked about there. Scott McCarter's uh, mentioned two matches, the 2002 World Championship quarter-final between Stephen Hendry and Ken Doherty. Oh, yeah. Said there were six centuries, four by Hendry, two by Doherty. Hendry won 13-12. And the other match, the 2004 Welsh Open final, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Steve Davis. He says, contrary to expectation, Davis led 4-1-8-5 before being pipped to the post in the length of the side. I remember that very clearly because on the, on the morning in the media centre, everyone was saying, oh, early night, Lance, you know, 9-2, 9-3 to, to Ronnie. But, of course, there was a couple of factors there. One, he's playing his boyhood idol, who, again, almost subconsciously he'd be cheering for, if he was, if, you know, in a, in a funny sort of way. But also the expectation on his own, in his own mind, I should win this easily. I think that definitely contributed. Um, it was, a, yeah, it was a great occasion. Again, the Welsh Open, of course, that was before the home nations. Uh, Callum Law from Inveruri in Aberdeenshire says, I'm thoroughly enjoying listening to the podcast every week after stumbling across it during lockdown. The following, we're like Vera Lynn here. We're like the sort of the Vera Lynn of the, of the lockdown. Uh, the forgotten, the forgotten matches podcast got me thinking about a few of mine. I'm not sure if you have any thoughts on these. Well, the first one I very nearly put in actually, Callum, which is John the Neil Robertson John Higgins 2009 Grand Prix semi final. He says I wasn't losing the match. It sticks. I watched it live from start to finish. It was a terrific standard. Went down to the pink in the decider. What also sticks out about the event, it was the last Grand Prix before it became the World Open. They used an FA Cup-style open draw, which resulted in Higgins playing O'Sullivan in the last 16, despite them being first and second seeds. Neil Robertson uh, won the tournament and was a launch pad for him going on to win the World Championship. And he says the other match he remembers was a couple, actually. There's uh, Ian McCulloch beating Graham Dot in the first round of the 2007 World Championship. Oh, yeah. He says he says it's the first World Championship I vividly remember. I was eight years old at the time. But I remember Doc winning the title year earlier. I was looking forward to seeing him defend it. Unfortunately, it didn't pan out too well. My memory of that is that Ian danced off the stage at the end. I think was that that match or was that no, maybe that, was a, no, yeah. that was that was a different match because he yeah. actually had a pretty good run. He, he had a few good years at the Crucible. He was in the quarters in 04, the semis in 05, and then had the win over Dotty in 07. But I think that was a previous match yeah, where he yeah. made a really good clearance in the last frame. But the one, the other thing about that match, it, a lot of needle built up during it, and they said some harsh words about each other at the end, which is what we like. Uh, yes. I mean, Callum's last choice, again, a great match, 2009 UK semi, John Higgins, Ronnie O'Sullivan, that Higgins won 9-8, and he, uh, it's quite a long description he puts it here. But yeah, it was a great match. My memory of that was that Ronnie needed one snooker in the decider and didn't play on. But anyway, maybe by then he'd had enough. Jarrow Warman, now he's in Duluth, Minnesota. We've heard from Jarrow before. Um, he says, I love, love, love your podcast. Thank you very much. Your mention of the 2002 China Open final reminded me of my researches into Mark Selby's early career. It was at that tournament where he beat Ding Junhui. Ding was actually 14 at the time. He was a wildcard. Uh, Joe Swell, Stephen Hendry, and Ronnie O'Sullivan before succumbing to Anthony Hamilton in the semi-finals. I think this is the same tournament where he was in the hotel lobby at 2 a.m. instead of 2 p.m. looking for a taxi to the venue. Well, he was. I was there. It was. It was a little earlier. It was about half past one. Okay, we'll, get, we'll cut him some slack. And he was stood. Mark was. He was only 18. He'd, I don't think he'd ever been abroad before. He, as a lot of people, when you go abroad, you're jet lagged. He woke up. Looked at his clock. It was like I don't know, say half past twelve. He thinks, "Oh no, I'm playing at two. I've got to get, I've got to get down to the venue." Put on his dress suit. Didn't occur to him it was pitch black. It didn't seem to register. And he was trying to get. He was looking for the courtesy car. There wasn't one. The reason there wasn't one is because it was the early hours of the morning. 
And we'd had a drink, and Arian Williams, the referee, went over to him. He saw him there and said, Mark, what's going on? You know, and, and he said, I'm, look, I'm waiting for the car. And then he had to explain to him, it's actually half one in the morning. But um, it's fair to say his timing improved over the years. Um, now then, Simon Biggin, he writes, Last weekend, as the climax of the European Masters final evening session was about to get underway, I was feeling a bit unwell. It crossed my mind I might turn in early and not bother watching. This reminded me of probably the only major TV final I've missed through feeling unwell in my 38 years of watching snooker. I'm restraining myself here from checking the facts and going from memory. I'm sure you and Michael will correct my wrongs. Well, it's yeah, I will correct this because you say you talk about the 1987 Grand Prix final. It was actually 1986 between Jimmy White and Rex Williams. On paper, it seemed like the only there was only one winner. Or, as was common at that time, I would fake illness to stay off school, make a, make a miraculous recovery just after lunch, and set my six-foot table off to play snooker, probably slipping on my waistcoat and bow tie to reenact some pro match, which thankfully, because of your podcast, I now realise I wasn't the only teenage boy to do until my dad was about to come home. Sorry, Mum, you were a softer touch. I think we're drifting away from the match here. Uh, he says, to this day, although knowing the result, I have no idea what the match was like. Perhaps you and Michael will give a very brief post-match analysis uh, well, Rex, of course, was the oldest ever ranking finest. I think he was 53. 53, yeah. Uh, and he led, I think, 5-3. And then Jimmy sort of, you know, came through at the end. I guess a bit like I was saying with O'Sullivan Davis, Jimmy would have gone into that match thinking, I've got to beat this old guy, surely. I mean, Jimmy was very young at the time. He was in his tw early 20s. Um, but Rex, you know, he was he was a very experienced player, great billiard player. Um and he had that kind of late flowering, didn't he? Got into the top 16 and, you know, was a, had that sort of classy style that, you know, maybe on a shorter match he would have won, but maybe a two-session match he was set up for Jimmy to win. He did beat Steve, didn't he, on the way to that? I think in the, in the quarterfinals, uh, Williams had beaten Steve Davis along the way. Jimmy was probably particularly keen to win it because Rex, as chairman at the time, was spending most of his time fining Jimmy's mate, Alex. So he probably wanted to put, put one over him in, in revenge for that. But yeah, what a performance that was at 53 to, to get to the final like that. And uh, he was a very good player still at that time. And even for a couple of years after that, he was still in the top 16. And uh, remarkable that he managed to do it not only at that age but also while effectively running the game at the same time i'll say this for rex right he had of all the people i've met in snooker he had the firmest handshake he would mm. literally your hand would be crushed by not much rex. used to him now of course because you can't <laughs> well, do it yeah, anymore exactly yeah yeah but no he was yeah he was um of course he was kind of a very powerful figure in the game uh john bennett says in answer to one of your listeners the vertically vertically challenged one uh questions about the height of a snooker table this was a few weeks ago the answer in terms of how high a snooker table should be is between two foot nine and a half inches and two foot ten and a half inches. On other snooker matters, I'm loving the coverage of events and seeing so many players not often seen on the TV tables. I've also found snooker to be probably the least affected sport in terms of not having an audience. I would agree with that. Mm. Uh, great to see new talent coming through. Aaron Hill, fantastic win over Sullivan. Jamie Wilson, he's a younger 16-year-old. He played in the Championship League. Drew with Mark Allen, actually. Uh, he said a ridiculously attacking 16-year-old attacking Many more who, with experience, will prove the future of the game is in good hands. Here's a thought. Back in the 1980s, the Hofmeister World Doubles brought about some unusual pairings. None more so than Alex Higgins and Eddie Charlton. What unusual pairings would we like to see today? How about Tepchara and New and Lee Walker, Ronnie O'Sullivan and Ali Carter? Well, Mark Williams, um, when Barry Hearn took over about 10 years ago now, came up with an idea to have a doubles tournament where you draw the, the pairings out of a hat. So you could play with someone you can't stand or just someone whose game doesn't, doesn't sort of complement yours. Um, people have their own ideas about that. Uh, the doubles, you know, has never kind of come back round again, has it? Uh, I think it was always felt that it was sort of the poor relation of the the original sort of ITV portfolio because the players, compared to a big ranking event, maybe they didn't really, they weren't that bothered or as bothered as they would be in a big tournament. Yeah, I mean, it was good for a while. I mean, it was sort of a novelty because it was mostly the same players doing well in the big events around that time. So you were seeing all these top players playing each other and trying to beat each other all year. And then just before Christmas, you'd see them playing in teams, which created a slightly different dynamic. And there were some great moments. I mean, when Alex Higgins and Jimmy White won it in 84, mm -hmm. I think that was a massive story. And then a couple of years later, there was the match. They were still playing together and... Um, they were being interviewed by Dickie Davies afterwards and Higgins, mm -hmm. who had been in the headlines a couple of weeks before for uh, basically behaviour at the UK Championship that got him banned. And in fact, he ended up in court over it. He stood up during the interview, started singing a song and, and dancing around. I mean, he literally made a song and dance over, over <laughs> the match. But I think after a while, the novelty of it wore off and there were a lot of the matches really weren't uh, 
that entertaining. It did come back in the World Masters in 91. There was a doubles there that Stephen Hendry and Mike Hallett won, having also won the last World Doubles itself in 87. But it's one of these things you think it's going to be good, but then you watch it and I'm not really sure it, it, it works all that well as, as, as a form it, of the game it, in the long run. Here's a question. If you're a player and you, okay, they, they bring back the doubles, who is the first player you ring to try and partner with? Well, if I was playing in it, yeah, if you're a player, if you're a, so who would you ring? Who would you want to partner? John Trump. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I would say actually John Higgins. I think. Um, yeah. Because you know that if there's going to be, if it goes to a decider, you know, that's the sort of guy you want. And of course, interestingly, he and Maguire, they did win the World Cup, which is the only event now that has a sort of yeah. double format. Anyway, the last email is from Dave Tyndall, our old pal. Uh, he said, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago on a recent trip to the Northern Snooker Centre in Leeds. I'd had my first ever snooker lesson. Peter Lyons is a regular in there, and I'd seen that he did lessons, so I took the plunge. The dream with any sporting lesson, I guess, is that the instructor will spot some terrible flaw, give you the fix, and suddenly you're transformed. Peter got me to knock... By the way, we know Dave's a good player. He made that maximum on a, on yeah. a, on yeah. a six-foot table. Uh, Peter got me to knock some balls about and spotted that I had no routine and that my cue action was a bit scoopy. But most notably, he said my bridge hand was too far from the cue ball. This confused me, as I always thought it was too near. Anyway, after a really enjoyable hour-long lesson, I decided to put Peter's words of wisdom in practice. Incredibly, and this almost seems too far-fetched, just 20 minutes later, I racked up my best ever break in 35 years of playing very irregularly on a full-size table at 78. Beat my previous best of 75. This was a few weeks ago, and I haven't been able to replicate it as yet, but I honestly think the holy grail of a century is possible if I keep putting the practice in. As well as being a testament to Peter's snooker coaching, the break also got me thinking. In golf, you can get a quick th thermometer test of someone's ability by asking what their handicap is. So my question is, and I realise there's no definitive answer, how do you compare snooker ability to golf ability? I'm pretty rubbish at golf, and my unofficial handicap is about 24. In my head, I'm relatively better at snooker, and my mates seem quite impressed by a 78 break, whereas they wouldn't blink an eye if I said I shot around a 94 at golf. I guess you could look at it in percentages. What percentage of golfers are 24 handicap or better? And what percent of snooker players had, have had a 78? Obviously, like me, you could be hopeless at safety. So a 78 doesn't measure your all-round game, but it's some sort of guide. Michael knows his golf, so just wanted to hear any yeah. insights. Well, that suggests I should put that on to you. <laughs> right, thanks for that. Well, I mean, as you've alluded to there, you know, it's not all about breaks. And I think particularly at a lower level, you can have someone who, when he gets in, might score well, but he'll just go for everything and play too open a game and get beaten that way. I think it's very hard to compare. I think in golf, absolutely, you know, your handicap does reflect how good a player you are. But they, they did try to do something um, like this in the 90s. I think it was called Q Factor. Mm. Someone set it up. Now, I've no idea how they worked it out, but I remember there was an advert in snooker scene and it listed a couple of examples. And John Higgins, who was world champion at the time, had just won it for the first time. His Q factor was given. I don't think I don't think you can come up with a reliable figure. I mean, the only thing that's reliable is your results and your rankings. Um, because, you know, golf, it's all measured in the score. You know, going out one day and shooting a 70 is better than a guy who goes out the same day and shoots 72, 73. But in snooker, you could have... I mean, look, look at... Um, you know, we've had examples recently of players making five and six centuries in a match and still getting beaten. So I, I don't think it's possible to... Uh, to come up with something like that. Just what, just before we wrap, actually, I'm going to pick up on a couple of things. Um, yeah. You mentioned earlier about uh, that the guy who had mailed in about players and you know sources of income that they have outside mm -hmm. of prize money. Well, I don't know if it's still around, but for a long time, of course, there was a lot of talk about the old WPBSA benevolent fund, which could uh, you could apply for uh, grants or loans to that if you'd fallen on hard times, if you'd uh, been involved in an illness or an injury or something like that. Fair to say it was open to abuse and uh, and was abused in a lot of ways. Not by everyone, of course. There were some you know, very legitimate cases. And I hope your Vera Lynn analogy doesn't turn out to be uh, too accurate, Dave, because, of course, she came to the fore during a world war and died during a pandemic. So the podcast has come to the fore during a pandemic. I hope that doesn't mean we're going to end up dying in a world war. No, I mean, let's hope, let's hope not. Let's hope not. Uh, just on Peter Lyons, uh, I, I did say the other week that he was looking for his 1-4-1 at the World Championship. Yeah. Um, now, Roger Lee didn't have it, but a podcast listener did have it. Mm. Uh, and it's uploaded, on YouTube now. Yeah, has it loaded yeah. to YouTube. And Peter, I can tell you, is very happy um, because he'd been looking for it for over 20 years. So, so the power of the podcast, you see, um, mm -hmm. has come to his aid. So 
Uh, yeah, and he's a good. I mean, I spent a lot of time with him recently, commentating, and uh, you know, it's a pure snooker man, Peter. So it's it's good that he's got Dave's uh, game in shape. He, Dave does ask finally, actually, um, about sort of snooker and golf. Who are the best sort of golfers among the snooker fraternity? I think uh, John Parrott uh, is always said to be really good. He's had a lot of time since retirement to perfect his game. Um, I know Hendry lives down at Sunningdale, where he's a member um, and plays all the time. I think probably you've got to be retired to put to put time into it. Um, I'd say, would you say there's a lot of similarity between the two sports in terms of the skills you need for them? Absolutely, without without doubt. I mean, they're the two sports I've played the most. And I mean, yeah. there are so many similarities between them. And it's so much about, um, obviously, hand-eye coordination is a huge yeah. factor in both of them. Temperament, all of those things. Again, as we alluded to in something earlier, you're hitting a still ball and you've time to think about it over the shot. It's not like football where you hit the ball instinctively. So absolutely massive similarities between them. I know John Parrott, who you mentioned there, he, even when he was in his early 20s and just starting out in his career, he was playing off a six handicap. Now, that's seriously good. As you say, he's got plenty of time to uh, to practice now. I think most of the players... Well, are, of course, Stuart, um, Stuart Bingham. Stuart Bingham, yeah. of course. He's on the wall at Crondon Park. He's won yeah. something there, hasn't he? So. I think he won the, 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 the club championship one time. Mm. The, the one snooker player who I, um, I'm led to believe is no good at golf is Darren Morgan. Apparently, um, when he was in his, his prime, he tried to golf a few times and just sprayed the ball absolutely everywhere and was told just to pack it in. So uh, I would have thought it would suit him really well, actually, because if you're methodical and deliberate and, you know, um, have a well thought out technique, which was basically everything you could say about Darren's snooker game, those things would translate really well to golf. But for some reason, it didn't work out for him. I'd say most of the snooker players are pretty good at golf, certainly the ones who have given it any go at time at all. And Mark Williams, of course, seems to be more interested nowadays in, in playing uh, in playing golf than even in playing snooker, which, you know, when you look at Gareth Bale, seems to be a common theme among <laughs> Welsh sporting legends. Indeed. Well, we should end there. Um, so this ends our fifth birthday spectacular. And if you've been listening, you'll be aware it's been no more spectacular than, than any other edition. But do keep your emails coming in. We're always keen to read them. Uh, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com snookersinpodcast at mail.com you don't need to be a BBC correspondent you can be from, from anywhere in the world and we do get uh, emails from all around the world that is it so uh, the English Open will be underway when this uh, comes out and we will be back hopefully in some form or another next week Sports Social Podcast Network Hello it is Ryan and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favourite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary btw void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus